0: What's going on everybody? This is Noah Alvarez and you are tuned to another episode of the My Mike and I podcast, episode 143. And before we get into this week's guest, which I'm very excited to announce, did want to thank Generic Sports for producing the instrumental playing in the background. You can check out more of his work on SoundCloud, on Bandcamp, on Twitter and Instagram. Just search up Generic Sports, no tricky spelling. And shout out to the homie Vince Correa for designing the My Mike and I logo that you are seeing in your screen. He also helps out a ton too with the graphics that go into the My Mike and I Instagram page. If you're on Instagram, go ahead and give it a follow at my period, Mike and period I. During the week, I like to promote audio and video snippets of the previous guests that I had on the show. If I was able to record with that person in person, uh, I'll take a picture with them after we record, post that up on the feed as well. Sometimes I'll post some stories, sometimes I'll post some polls for you guys, so just is a good way to interact with the fans and listeners on that platform. Also follow me on Twitter, at underscore Noah Alvarez, same thing, like to promote the podcast on there. I'll also... Um, just give a lot of other sports takes and that kind of stuff so yeah two best platforms to reach out to me if you're interested in being on the show as well as if if you have any feedback for the show now before we get into it didn't want to say because i'm recording this the night of february 11th didn't want to say happy valentine's day whether you're listening this before valentine's day or after the holiday just a friendly reminder to love yourself and all your loved ones Every day of the year, you don't have to wait for one day to do it and show affection, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, hope you guys continue to battle through whatever obstacle you may be facing, continue to chase your dreams, not checks. And let's go ahead and get into this week's guest. Can I get a drum roll please? This week's guest is none other than Dre Baldwin. Dre Baldwin is a man of many talents. He did play overseas basketball professionally for almost a decade. He's also the host of the Work On Your Game podcast. He's written many different books as well. But we talk about his inspiring story and how he got to play overseas and what motivated him to start all these different outlets and become a motivational speaker. He's talked on a few TED Talks as well. Really excited and really grateful to have had him on the show. So without further ado, Hope you enjoy the conversation between Dre, Baldwin, and myself. So, very interesting person you are, and you have accomplished a lot in your life, but what a lot of guests, I like to ask where they started off as a child, and what were some of their early interests, your hobbies, growing up in that elementary and middle school age? Wow, that's a good question. No one's ever asked me that one. So... Uh, growing up, my early interests
1: were, I mean, I was always into sports. I used to play, you know, the normal backyard or driveway sports growing. Up. We played kickball. Somebody had one of those portable basketball courts behind their house. We did that. We played, uh, we would just do races. We would, you know, jump over, jump over ropes, all kinds of stuff you do in the, in the hood. That's the kind of sports that I played growing up. As far as other than that, I don't know. Nobody, people, nobody ever asked me that. No. So I, got, I really got to think about it a little bit. What was I interested in as an elementary school kid? Um, I mean, school, of course, cause my parents were, my mom's an educator. So she was really big on making sure that her kids, I have one sister who's a year older than me, making sure that we were really uh, focused when she had been a teacher herself. So she knew exactly you know, how to teach. She was probably better than the teachers <laughs> as far as teaching. So we had a really good um, foundation when it came to reading and writing and things like that. So I went on to be like a, a star academically, going to all the best schools, skipping grades and all that stuff. I was good enough. Mm-hmm. I was talented, but I didn't really, I never really super applied myself at the school level once to other stuff, like, you know, hanging with the other kids who weren't into that stuff, you know, sports, girls, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So growing up, what was I mostly focused on or what was I mostly interested in? always had a uh, a bend towards learning i was always into reading and writing even before i would be able to have articulated it but i would say that pretty much was some of
0: the that's the best i can think of But if i think of something else i'll come back to it okay now you know just if you listen to your podcast or youtube videos you're very good at speaking did you do any speaking or public speaking kind of stuff when you were a child middle school high school age talent shows or anything like that well, I'll tell you two stories. <laughs> so <laughs> when I was in maybe second
1: grade, I, I don't know how I got this idea. I had to ask my mom about it, maybe, you know, but I ended up running for class treasurer. Mm-hmm. So this is in elementary school. So our elementary was first grade to fifth grade. Now we know that school elections are not really about, not really about you know, how good you actually are it's not about merit it's about it's a popularity contest even now these days the presidential is a popularity <laughs> contest It's all it is so i'm a second grader running for treasurer in a school that goes up to fifth grade and we know that the second graders aren't popular and it's school that goes to fifth grade so i don't even know where i got this idea but i do remember that i did run for treasurer i did not win The uh, long story short but what happened was there was an assembly and each candidate had to come up and give or they got to come up and give a little speech Mm -hmm. as to know to pitch themselves as the person who should win and i had never speech before and again i don't know why i was even running it's not like i was excited for it but my mom helped write my speech now my mom's not a speechwriter, so this should tell you a little bit about how that went now at this time now i'm um scrawny kid with clothes that are too small because I was a growing boy, I'm 6'4 now. So I was always growing out of my clothes and we had to wear school uniforms at the time. So my pants were too short, clothes were too tight. And this is in the 90s when it wasn't cool to have short pants and tight clothes. Nowadays, you're the coolest guy in the room. But back then you were a geek. Nowadays, being a geek is cool. Back then being a geek was not cool. So I'm like a geek. Second of all, not confident in my body and my clothes. And third, I had a terrible speech written by somebody who shouldn't have been writing speeches. So that was my first time I can remember doing any type of public speaking. Complete fail. Now, a year later, I somehow, again, I don't know how I ended up in this. My mom must have did it. I'm going to blame all this on my mom. Okay. So <laughs> I ended up getting into a, like the drama club. The drama mm. club was like um, acting. Yes. So we did a play and it was, I did two of them. I did one called The Salt and the Sea. And I played this guy named Giles. It was white like one of the characters. And then the next year we did Joey Caesar. It was Julius Caesar. I played Brutus and Julius Caesar. And in that, I, and we had to memorize like all of our lines, you know, in acting, like theater, you had to memorize your lines. There's no teleprompter or anything like that. And I remember I memorized all of my lines for that. And this was in like third grade. And I did really well. I remember just being very confident in my role, in Brutus, because I'm not playing myself, I'm playing a role. And I remember we put it on for the school and all that, just third grade or third grade stuff. But I did really well in that. And I think it was then that I noticed, I don't remember it, but I noticed I had a propensity for being able to take in a good amount of information and then be able to, all I was doing was reciting somebody else's script. But later on in life, I still do that kind of to this day. I don't memorize my live videos and podcasts now, but that was my
0: first successful public speaking uh, endeavor, Noah. Okay, right on. I love that story, man. Especially Brutus, that's like the... It's a pretty big, uh, important role in that play right there. Yeah. Cause he, you get to stab Caesar and then <laughs> he got
1: to give a speech after that as to why he stabbed Caesar. So yeah. I remember, I memorized that whole speech.
0: All right. So yeah. fast, fast, uh, ah, fast forwarding to high school, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you became the D- division three basketball player who played overseas and whatnot, but when did that yeah. love for basketball first kick in, in high school?
1: Wow. Well, that came about, I mean, I'd always played all different kinds of sports. We dabbled in different stuff. My first sport, the first sport that I thought I could be somebody in was actually football because that's the sport, you know, growing up, we didn't have, we didn't have a bunch of people with basketball ambitions, but we all would play football in the backyard because football was a sport that we were on even more than basketball back then. And we would play, you know, just in the driveway, two-hand touch football and stuff like that. And it was only later that one of our neighbors moved in and they had a portable basketball court, but you got a new kids at that age, we get the portable course and we lower it. So it's not even 10 feet. We yeah. lower it so we could dunk on it and make it easier for us to play on it. So none of us was really that ambitious about basketball, but football, we all thought we could play. Cause also with basketball, you gotta, we're assuming you gotta be a certain height. And for the most part you do. Now as kids, none of us was like super duper tall, but anyway, that's how we were playing football. And I used to watch this guy named Deion Sanders. Oh, yeah. Primetime. And yeah. Yeah. So I thought I could be like Deion because I was pretty fast. I was faster than everybody on the block. So I thought I could be Deion Sanders. And then I played a little bit of baseball, but I wasn't good at baseball at all. Basketball I didn't really start playing until about age 14. Mm-hmm. Didn't start playing basketball like every day. So around age 14. And it was around probably age 16 when I still wasn't on my high school team yet because I got cut three. Years. Mm-hmm. Didn't even play till my last year and sat the bench that year. Around age 16, I got the idea that I want to be a professional basketball player. I don't know. There was nothing in my reality that said that was actually going to happen. But I believe that I had the ability to do it because I knew I was continually getting better. I could feel myself getting better, even though I wasn't having the results. So as far as falling in love with it, I don't know if there was ever a moment where I was fell in love with the game, but that was the thing that I was doing. And I've heard somebody say, I think it was Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, who talked about you don't need to follow your passion. You should follow your discipline, follow the things we're actually putting time into. And what I was putting time into was showing up to that court and working on my game. So the more you do something, if you're getting any kind of results, probably the more you're going to like it, the more of an affinity you'll develop. So that's where it
0: came from probably around age 16, the middle of high school. Okay. Right on. And so you mentioned your senior year, you didn't play a whole lot, but how did you go about as far as putting your name out there for colleges and eventually make a college roster? Yeah. So it wasn't through basketball. <laughs> that
1: was through academics. Because like I told you, my mom was a, a an educator. So she had her kids on a, a positive path when it came to education from an early age. And like I said, my sister went on to be like a, a superstar academic, getting getting straight A's, going to the best high school in the city, getting an Ivy League scholarship. And she has all these degrees, even to this day. She's a professor nowadays at a college. Oh, wow. Now me, I had the... Again, I had the the tools and I had the talent and I had the the foundation coming from my parents. But at the same time, I super duper applied myself as a student, but I did enough. I understood the game, which is, okay. you want to graduate. So you got to at least pass the class. So A, B, C, some classes I would get an A, but for the most part, especially when I got to college, I was a C student in college, not because I was average of average intelligence. I was of average effort. But I knew the average effort would be enough for me to graduate. So going back to your question, in my high school, I went to this, like a magnet school. They have those where you with where yes. like you like the best student, quote unquote, best students get to go to these schools. Mm-hmm. So I went to a magnet high school. And the way they had it at that time, I graduated from high school in the year 2000, just to give everybody reference. It was weighted. So in other words, they took all the schools in the city of Philadelphia, which is where I'm from, and the magnet school. Like if you got a C at a magnet school, that was the equivalent of getting a a B plus or an A at an average school, like a neighborhood school, because theoretically the coursework was harder at the school. Now, I don't know if that's actually true because I only went to one school, but I was probably like a a B student in high school. I was good enough, but I wasn't like trying to dominate academically. I didn't really care. So my grades at that magnet school weighed against everybody else made me like a star to the colleges. So my senior year of high school, how old are you know? I'm 26. Okay, so you've been through the senior high school. So in high school, that senior year, they, colleges start sending me letters. So I would get all these let, random letters from school. They'd be form letters. I didn't understand that, but I thought I was somebody special because I'm getting all these letters from college. And they're saying, hey, we really want you to come here. But it was just simple. They probably sent out a million of those. I just yeah. got one because I had good grades and I had good, um, SAT scores. So because of that combination, I started getting all these, they called them fee waivers it was like, you can apply to the school, but you don't have to pay the application fee. So the application fee would be like 50 bucks, hundred bucks. And if you apply to a bunch of schools, that stuff starts to add up. And I wasn't paying, I didn't have the money. My parents were paying it. So every application fee waiver that I received. I just applied to that school. I just applied the logic, like, all right, it doesn't cost me anything to apply, just apply. So I just any school that sent me a waiver, I applied. Now in my high school, they had a, a standard of sending every student to college. They had they would roast hey, 100 of our students go on to college, or they get accepted at least. So we had this bulletin board, the counselor's office, that had every senior, and it had a list of every school you had been accepted to. So I started looking at that. Like, it was like competition for me. I was like, all right, I'm gonna get accepted to the most colleges. So even though you can only go to one, right? So I just started applying to every school that sent me the fee waiver. I got accepted to like 13 colleges because I was just applying everywhere. And I remember I got accepted to the school called David Lipscomb University or David Lipscomb College. And it was in the middle of Tennessee, like redneck Hick County, Tennessee. And I went to high school in North Philadelphia. So we hardly had any white people school except for the teachers and I remember telling one of the counselors because I got accepted to the school and I was looking at their brochure they would send me brochures and, you know it has all the beautiful pictures of the campus right I was like yeah I want to go here I want to go to Scone University I've never even been I don't even <laughs> remember being out of the state of Pennsylvania I want to go to Tennessee and the counselor was a white woman and it was funny because she would just laugh and say like you go there you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be an exper- Shock. you're not even gonna know what hit you you get out there and mm-hmm. she didn't say it in so many words but i i kind of got what she was trying to say like yo you're going to school in north philadelphia you want to go to tennessee and but anyway what's funny is i'm to penn state which is just as white as that tennessee school would have been but anyway i got accepted i don't even remember what your question was tell me the question again
0: Oh, just, I honestly, I forgot too. I was enjoying <laughs> hearing your story. So you can go ahead and continue. Okay. All right. So I'll tell you the rest of it. So I got accepted to all of these schools.
1: I had like 13 on the bulletin board. And then here's what happened late in my senior year of high school. So I've been accepted to all these schools, but I didn't have a reason to choose any one of them mm-hmm. because just because you got accepted to a school, the fee waiver mean you could apply for free, but it doesn't mean you can go there for free. You still got to pay to go to school. Now, I didn't have an academic scholarship. I- we had a few little small ones, but I didn't have amazing grades. I wasn't spectacular. So my family is going to have to pay somehow, some way for whatever school I went to. And I didn't understand all the intricacies of that at the time. So in my senior year, my counselor, a different counselor, black woman, she gathered a bunch of the young men in school and said, hey, you all should come to this meeting because we have a recruiter coming here from Morehouse College. Now, anyone who doesn't know what Morehouse is, is an HBCU, Historically Black College, down in Atlanta, Georgia, and Morehouse it has alumni like uh, Martin Luther King went there, Spike he mm. went there, and a few other very prominent black men went there. And it's an all male school, uh, Morehouse. So this guy was coming to our school, and they send their recruiters. You know, colleges send recruiters around to go recruit. Now, since they're HBCU, they go to predominantly black high schools and they're only looking for men. So they know exactly who their target audience is. So the counselor gathered about eight of us men from who were seniors at my high school. This guy comes in, gives a presentation about Morehouse and he's talking about the school and this and that. And there was one thing about Morehouse that turned me off was that he said once a week, every student on campus has to wear a tie all day when you go to class because and this is their their theory was this is preparing you for the professional world that you're going to be moving into after school. I didn't really like that idea because first of all, I like dressing up that time, and the second thing was I knew I wanted, what I wanted to do after school, which is play basketball. So I didn't need to wear a suit and tie. I'd be wearing <laughs> shorts and sneakers. But anyway, I listened to his whole presentation. He yeah, he had all of our information. He had our transcripts, our school transcripts. He had our SAT scores of all the eight guys in the room and he starts looking at everybody's stuff after his presentation and he's real serious the room is real everybody just listened to him and there was one guy he was a classmate of mine named Eric and he had really good grades higher grades than me and even better SAT scores and this recruiter tells this guy I'll give you a full scholarship to Morehouse offering it to him right there on the spot Damn. I don't know if Eric ended up going there I never heard from Eric after high school but he offered him a full scholarship on the spot and then he looked at mine And he saw mine and mine is Eric. So he offered me a half scholarship. He said, I'll offer you 50 percent scholarship to come to Morehouse. And he didn't offer anybody else anything, anything. Mm. But he wanted all of us to. So I told the counselor after that and she was really excited. I told my parents they were excited because I finally had a reason to choose a specific college because all these other colleges accepted me. But why would I go to this one or that one or that one? And now my parents were happy. I realized why they were really happy is because now they're thinking we don't have to spend as much money. That's why yeah. they're really excited. They <laughs> didn't care what school I went to, yeah. they would think about their pocketbooks. So here's what ended up after that and get damn near to graduation. And we're almost at high school graduation. And my parents uh, called me into their bedroom and said, Listen, um, we know you got that scholarship to Morehouse. And they have been so excited because now they're like, All right, we finally have some direction for college. But they said, Even looking at the 50% that is remaining, Mm -hmm. we can't afford to pay that because the scholarship he had offered me was just off of the room and board, 50% of the whole cost. That didn't include the tuition. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking up Morehouse's uh, cost, maybe just a couple months ago, because I was thinking about this exact story that you're asking me or that I'm telling each year is damn near $50,000 for an out-of-state student yeah. from Pennsylvania. So, you know, in-state yeah. is cheaper. So my parents are like, if we take out loans for this, because I wouldn't have got the loan because I didn't have any but if they took out loans to pay for me to go to Morehouse, my mom said, we'll be in debt for the rest of our lives. We'll be paying this off forever if we take out loans for you to go to Morehouse. So you probably can't go to Morehouse. And I couldn't argue it because I not have any money to put up. So they said, well, look, you also got accepted to Penn State. Now I'm from Philadelphia, so that's an in-state school. Mm-hmm. And they said that Penn and the tuition for Penn State for an in-state student was low. And they said, look, you can go to Penn State Abington, which is a branch campus, which is right outside of Philadelphia. The main mm-hmm. campus of Penn State is about four hours away from Philly, but mm-hmm. the branch campus was close. And I drive from my home, family's home, to that campus every day. It was only 20 minutes away. Uh-huh. And they didn't even have dorms. So I'm basically going to the 13th grade, going to Penn State, <laughs> living at home. So I'm and this is what you can do instead. What do you think about that? Now, I don't know how anyone who's listened to this was raised, but you know, when your parents ask you a question, like, what do you think? But it's not really a question. It's yeah. Like, you know, be with us because you don't have, you can't offer anything else because you ain't got no power. So that's basically <laughs> what it was. I said, okay, <laughs> I didn't have nothing. What can I do? Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up going to Penn State Abington. And your question was about uh, walking on in college. Yeah, I think that's what your question was. Yes. Yeah, so I finally get to Penn State Abington. And I never been to the campus before the day of orientation and orientation was in the basketball gym and the campus is only like four buildings. So walking on, for those who don't know what that means, it means nobody knows you. You don't have a scholarship. You just literally walk in and try to prove yourself. So that's what I did. The first day of campus, I saw where the gym first day of school, where the gym was. I found out what time everybody came to play basketball. I figured the basketball team. Players would have to come through there at some point because there's only one gym. Yeah. And I just kept showing up to the gym every day, just playing with whoever was in there, just random dudes who had no business playing basketball. I was just playing with them. Finally, the basketball team players showed up. And, you know, they asked, like, hey, are there any new guys here who we should be paying attention to? And I had started to catch some people's eyes. And that's how I got my foot in the door. And then basketball tryouts or practices started. And the coaches saw me and they said, all right, this guy's on the team. It wasn't really that hard of a situation because the campus was pretty small. And I ended up being a starter freshman year of college, go figure, after I sat on the bench in high school. So mm-hmm. that's how I got into walking on in college. No, it's a long story, but that's how it happened.
0: Yeah. But I think like I like hearing that story is, is very refreshing because there's a lot of late bloomers, right? Quote unquote. And I think a lot of times, you know, the pressures that be in high school, you know, especially now at the social media age, everyone has, you know, their highlight tapes that they want to post, or you know, they got offers from such and such. But there's a lot of people who even make, you know, the professionals in the NBA, NFL, MLB that weren't stars at their high school and they, you know, bloomed later right. on. So I think that's, you okay. know, a very inspirational story and in, just to kind of keep at it, especially if you love something, you know, you can get a growth spurt later. You just develop your skills and mm-hmm. confidence. And like you said, you're playing basketball since you said 14, correct? Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's, you know, you have a little bit more years under your belt that you didn't have in high school. So the confidence and your abilities are just naturally going to get better over time. That's right. I mean, that's yeah. what happened. And then, so I read too that you transferred to Penn State and other branch of Penn State Altoona, correct? Yeah. So you want to hear that story too? Yeah. How did that come about? <laughs> All right. So my freshman year of
1: college at Abington, um, again, I became a starter. I didn't have amazing, stars, maybe you no know, 10 points a game, but I was a starter. So I started to get some game experience that I needed. Like you talked about being a late bloomer, I didn't have a lot of game experience. So that summer, I would drive up to now the same home I grew up in while my freshman year of college. But now, since I'm a student at Penn State and I have that student ID, I can use the campus facilities anytime I want because I'm a student. Mm-hmm. in the summer, because I had grown up playing basketball on a blacktop, on the concrete outside. Nowadays, kids growing up playing ball, and they don't even play outside anymore. Now everybody has to be in the gym because you got to have your camera and you know yeah. film yourself <laughs> and all that. But so we grew up, I mean, I'm a little bit, I'm a generation ahead of you, but we grew up playing ball in the street, outside mm-hmm. in the street. If it was raining, you just couldn't play ball that day. But nowadays, they got the gym. So anyway, since I had access to gym now, I stopped playing in the neighborhood playground. I would just drive to the Abington campus every day in the summer to use their gym to work on my game. And the funny thing is none of my teammates ever came in the gym. We all had access to it. But after the basketball season ended, I never saw any of those guys ever again. They never came back in the gym. They weren't working on their games. These guys weren't like serious basketball players. They played because they were good enough and mm-hmm. it was available. But they they weren't ambitious. They weren't like trying to go to the next level or anything. They were playing now, but they knew basketball was going to end in a year or two. And then they would move on to their, you no know, quote unquote, regular lives. But I had that ambition, despite I'm at this nobody school where nobody comes out of here playing ball. So I would go to the gym every day. Empty gym. I mean, beautiful gym. Empty gym, just work on my game by myself, lifting weights. This is the first time I lifted weights at that point. I'm about 19 years old after my freshman year. Just using the gym every day. And it'll be dead empty. A beautiful campus. I I will work out there to to this day. If I still lived in Philly, I would still be going up there to work on my, but there'd probably be players in there. But anyway, one day I had not not eaten breakfast at home. So I parked my car next to the gym like I always did. But I walked across the campus to the cafeteria to get some food first before my individual workout. And as I'm walking out of the cafe with my food, this dude just walks up to me and starts talking to me. He says, yo, man, what position do you put? Now, mind you, we in the cafeteria is the time. It's not even the middle of the school year. So it's not even that many people on campus. Right. And I wasn't even taking classes. I only came up there to use the gym. I wasn't taking any classes. And I don't know this guy. And I look at him and I say, you know that I even play. What, do you, what is he even asking me? And yeah. again, where I'm from in Philly, you don't walk up to people that you don't know and strike up conversation. <laughs> you don't yeah. talk to people you don't know. Them. So I'm looking at this dude. Uh, he's crazy. He's like, man, well, I'm So I responded to him. I say I play guard. And he starts talking about asking me what my major is and stuff like that. And I'm still trying to figure out who he is and how he knows who I am, because he just approached me out of the blue. Mm -hmm. So he finally pulls out his business card and shows it to me. He's a like a uh, recruiter for a different campus. It's a Penn State Altoona campus, which is about 30 minutes away from the main campus of State College, but it's in three schools. Now, Penn State, Abington today is Division Three, but at that time, athletically, it was provisional, which means it was on its way to D3. But the way the NCAA rules are, you got to go through like a five-year period of mm-hmm. not being three, like you're on the cusp, but you're yeah. not there yet. So anyway, Abington, you can only play two years of sports at that time. Mm-hmm. So every athlete there is, knows they only get two years, then they either have to go else or they're done playing sports. Mm-hmm. So that's why I never saw a lot of my teammates again after the season, because they had already played their second year. So they weren't trying to transfer to play ball. They were just like, all right, I'm going to go to school. It is over. Bad ball's done. So anyway, I'm thinking I need to know where I'm going to go after my sophomore year. Now, this is the summer after my freshman year. So when this guy approaches me, the first thing I'm thinking is, OK, this is my meal ticket to play football if I do whatever this guy's talking about. Because on his business card, one thing was he was a he was like a recruiter for minority students. He's a black guy. So his job was to recruit more minorities. To come to that campus, Mm. but he was also the head basketball coach. Mm. And so this was his second job. He had two jobs. He was only on the Abington campus on a recruiting job, not for basketball, but for his job as an administrator. But he saw a basketball player and said, No, let me grab him at the same time. So that's what he would do. That was his hustle. So he would use his job as an administrator to also recruit basketball. So I ended up getting recruited by him right there on the spot. And I ended up going to Penn State. Tune on that and I tell people all the time that was a lucky, super lucky bird because this dude I later found out he didn't know who I was. Yeah, he was not he was not on the campus looking for Dre Baldwin. Mm-hmm. He had no reason to believe I was even gonna be there. And mind you, it's not like he came to the basketball gym and said I found some basketball players. He was in the cafeteria talking to people, he just saw me walk by. And he said, and later on, he told me the story. He said, you know, as a coach, I knew what players I needed from my roster the following season. And When I saw you walk by, you looked like the kind of player that I needed. But he didn't even know who I was. He didn't even know yeah. if I was any good. I might have been a complete bum. <laughs> but he approached, me, he approached me and recruited me anyway. And it's not that I actually happened to be good. So that was a stroke of luck. And that luck only happened because I had taken the initiative to go to the gym and work on my game every day in the summer on my own Nobody told me to do that. I was just doing it on my own, and one day I happened to get lucky. So that's mm-hmm. how I got recruited to Penn State Altoona.
0: Right, and I think a lot of times people misunderstand luck. Right, luck is something that they wait for and they wish for, and they just sit in their room or whatever they're doing, but they don't really do anything to change like their habits and stuff like that. But you know, right. in your story right there, you're going to work every day, right, or to you know to the mm-hmm. gym every day to put in some work and work on your game, work on your craft. And it, you know, the luck just happened to follow because you were taking that initiative. And I feel like luck has that sort of, luck, luck works in that type of way where other people who have that misconception of luck, where it's is, oh, you know, something that you just wait for and wait for and not take any initiative or take any changes. And that's where they get mistaken. And sometimes they're off less, left disappointing and like, oh, all the other people get lucky. And it's like, no, they, yeah, sure they did get lucky. But like in your story, you're also like, you know, going to the gym every day and no one told you to do that. That was out of all your, you know, your passion, all of your will. That was all out of you, you know? Right. And one thing I tell people all
1: the time about creating luck is you got to be outside. Mm-hmm. And I use outside metaphorically, but outside means be where things are happening so that you put yourself in position for something lucky to happen. Mm-hmm. But if you're just sitting in the house waiting for somebody to call you or waiting for someone to light up your inbox, then the luck probably won't occur. But if you go out and you make calls and you knock on doors and you reach out to people, then happen like you started this show. You put yourself in line for luck. Mm-hmm. Somebody may hear this and they're to take a liking to you because you're out there. But if you're just
0: sitting around waiting for it, of course, it's not going to happen. Right. So going back to the college basketball, how did the Altoona experience or the experience at Altoona differ than the Albington experience? Well, the thing about Altoona is that the coach is a little bit more hands on because at the Abington
1: campus. You know, everybody kind of like part time. Our coach was even a part time coach. He had a full time job. Not on campus. And he coached like as a a side gig because Abington, again, they didn't have a big program for sports or anything like that. For the most part, it was only two years anyway. But at Altoona, our coach was closer to full time. He technically wasn't even full time because he had a full time job as a recruiter, but he was also the basketball coach. So he was just around all the time because he had an office on campus and all that. But it wasn't an athletic building office. He had an office in the admissions office. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But because he was, he kind of interwined them. He His hustle was to interwine coaching and recruiting at the same time. So that's how everybody knew him. But anyway, he was much more hands-on than the coach at Abington. And he told me when I first came here, he said, look, I know once he recruited me, he did his background on me and found out about me and talked to my previous coach and said, well, one of Dre's bad habits is that he doesn't always practice hard. Not practicing, practicing by myself, I was always good at. But with team practice, I didn't always practice hard be boring it was monotonous anyone who's played basketball knows like it's the same plays you gotta run the same plays over and over again the same drills every day I would get bored with that stuff so I wouldn't practice hard but I was good enough to still play good the coach told me look I know you're better than some of the your teammates here but if you don't practice hard you're not going to play and he wasn't lying because when I didn't practice hard I didn't play and I didn't I played but I didn't play as much as I should that year I probably should have been the leading scorer on the team and all that but I ended up being like eighth in minutes per game on the roster just because my bad practice habits I've only started one game it was the last game in in the playoffs I finally started practicing hard and I finally earned the starting spot but last game of the year we lost in the playoffs but anyway that's how things went at Penn State Altoona my sophomore year then that's the same coach coach who had just recruited me he called a meeting after the basketball season and told us that he was probably going to lose his job Ooh. because the program was decided they had decided they were going to hire a new coach mm-hmm. and he did lose his job a new coach comes in this guy named Armin gilliam who had he had played in the nba back in the, the he got drafted like right after david robinson in 1987. oh played through the 90s and he retired in like early 2000s he played 13 years in a week mm-hmm. but Armin gilliam wasn't that much of a basketball coach he didn't quite understand the NBA system and all of that but anyway out of the basketball program early in my junior year because it was just a anybody who knows college sports knows that when a new coach comes into a program a lot of the former players or the returning players don't last into the regime not because they're not good but because the coach wants to bring in their own people it's just right. like if a new ceo comes into a company some people just lose their job mm-hmm. so it was the same thing so i ended up out of the program the middle of my year i didn't even play basketball the rest of my junior year, I didn't even play on the team my senior year at all in college at a D3 school. Now, I still have this vision that I'm going to become a professional athlete. It doesn't really seem to make sense. But, no, you know, I was still friends with guys on the basketball team. My roommate was on the basketball team. These guys are still my best friends to this very day. So I was still everybody knew me as a basketball player, even though I wasn't even on the basketball team. So it was just like that. I did play intramurals, which is like where you play against yeah. other guys on campus. I won the championship in intramurals. So I always tell people that. So even though I didn't play my senior year, I did win the championship. I averaged like 40 points a game playing against guys, who, <laughs> you know, selling used cars the next year.
0: But yeah, yeah. I did
1: my, <laughs> yeah, I did my thing in intramurals and we would play pickup. One thing that we did start doing is me and you know, a couple of my teammates, we a couple of aspirations of playing pro basketball. So now I'm going to get around guys with some ambitions, even though we're all at a D3 school but we would go play pickup against you know, whoever. Everybody in the city of Altoona knows we would go to th- leagues. We would go any gym we heard. that guys were playing ball who could play. Mm-hmm. We would show up and we would play against them. we play in all kinds of leagues, any kind of tournament. And because where we were in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania, a lot of people wouldn't notice if you're not from Pennsylvania, but there are a lot of colleges around there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're at D3 Penn State Altoona, but D1 mm-hmm. Penn State main campus is 45 minutes away from us. So we would drive up every friday and we will play pickup mm. in their gym now penn state's main campus has like eighty thousand students yeah so mm-hmm. they have an intramural building that has like eight full courts and everybody would show up and play pickup mm-hmm. there and we would just we start, just started showing up and what we would do we would have on our practice jerseys from our campus every day when we we're playing because guys would see us and they're like these dudes like they can play and they would look at us like we've seen these guys before where who are they So they started to notice us and they saw our practice there. Oh, they go to the Altoona campus. So up there in state college, words start getting around like, yo, these random dudes go to our campus are coming up here, playing pickup and winning Like, yo. And so what happened is after a couple of weeks of us showing up, these other guys, they're not even on the basketball team at Penn State. Mind you, they're like regular campus guys, but they like basketball. So they start bringing more and more people each week. They start coming with more people because they're like, yo, we can't let these dudes come to our campus and be running the gym and our, on our campus. So they start trying to beat us and we will be beating them. And at first they, we were clashing with them. They were really trying to like punk us because they're like, yo, you can't come on our, our turf and beat us. But eventually we became cool with those guys. And then word eventually got around to the basketball team, the D one basketball team at Penn state. And it wasn't even just the men's team, the women's team as well, mm-hmm. because at this time, the women's basketball team was ranked top 10 in the nation. They had a few players end up playing in the WNBA. Wow. So the girls and anybody who doesn't know for I'm sure the WNBA does this, but college basketball absolutely does this. The basketball team will recruit male basketball players, not from mm-hmm. the team, but males to come practice against them so the girls can kind of like get tougher playing against men because the men are a little bit more physical, can run mm-hmm. faster, jump high, theoretically speaking. Okay, shout yeah. out to the female players. Yes. So they would come to the intramural gym, the women's basketball team, to play against males. Wow. And they'd be winning. And the girls, could, these girls could play. This oh, is hell the top yeah! nation team. These are not some <laughs> sissy girls. They could actually play. And they would be beating people. And then they ended up playing against us. We would beat them, though. And then the men's basketball team start coming in the gym and they didn't always show up to the gym because, mind you, at a division one campus, a big school like Penn State or USC or UCLA or Texas, they have their own facility. Like if you're on the basketball team, you don't ever have to play against a regular if you don't want to. You could go into the basketball only facility that nobody else can come in and practice all you want. But they would show up to the intramural building and play against whoever because they just wanted some competition. They get used to looking at themselves and playing by themselves. So they would just show up. And then when words start getting around that these random dudes from Altoona were showing up on their campus, they start coming in there. Mm-hmm. So we'd be in there playing, and almost like we generated this whole crowd on a school at a school that we didn't even go to because we kept coming up there and we were actually playing. And they were like, Yo, these dudes can actually play. And everybody knows that the Altoona camp E3 school. So they're assuming. D3, these guys can't play. But then when they saw us play, they're like, yo, these guys can actually go. That's how we started to actually make friends with we made friends with the women's players up there with players up there and with just regular students up there. So we used to I mean, we spent half our time on State College's campus partying and just knowing people because we were always up there playing basketball. So that was actually aside from on the actual basketball team. That was one of the best experiences in college was the pickup games that we played and the fact that we would just go wherever. There was also, there was another D3 school there called Mount Out. We would play pickup with those guys. Mm -hmm. We would just drive to their campus and just show up and just play. Mm -hmm. There was another D1 school called St. Francis College, Mm -hmm. which is not as big as Penn State, but it's D1. We would pick up with those guys. We went to their gym and played pickup with them. So we would just play with whoever. And the good thing was at that time, Noah, was that, a couple of my teammates and we all ended up having to be at a D three at the same time, Normal D three basketball players do not think the way that we were thinking. So it was just an amazing confluence of events that we all ended up at the same place at the same time. But I'm the type of guy who I was so ambitious at basketball. I'm like, wherever I hear there are players who can play, I'm yeah. going to show up and play and let's just see what happens. Mm-hmm. I don't care who it is, where it is I'm showing up most D three players. And I know because I played with them, not ambitious about basketball they they played in high school they have enough talent they can make the team at a d3 there's not a lot of talent there it's not like this is deep talent pool it's not like the dream team you got to beat out somebody (laughs) who can actually go to the team and they weren't ambitious when the basketball season ended you didn't see them again you never saw them again until the next year because they didn't play pickup every day they weren't guys who would come early because we're like we play pickup at six o'clock every day 6 15 guys are straddling in the gym they not sure if they want to play or not. But I had a couple of teammates. We were like serious about it. And when we noticed that our own teammates weren't coming to the gym to play pickup our campus, we're like, all right, forget these guys. Let's go to somebody else's campus and play with some serious players. And that's why we started doing that. And that's how we started meeting people. But that was the best experience, just being able to do that
0: yeah that sounds awesome I, I think the biggest thing you could take away from that is not waiting for opportunities but taking mm-hmm. opportunities into your own hand right And like junior and senior year, obviously mm-hmm. because of the coaching change it didn't work out for you to play on the you know the actual school's team. but you just said mm-hmm. screw it like I'm gonna go out to all these other campuses and you kind of build your buzz that way and I feel like that That's probably right. did a, a whole lot for your confidence as far as you know on the court because now all these other people are paying attention you know, you got kids on these mm-hmm. bigger campus. Um, knowing who you are and that, that guy has to be a good feeling. Yeah, it showed me that I was capable of playing with those guys. Now, I don't
1: know if I could play with them every day. I mean, it's <laughs> to prove it yet, but it showed me even when I just got a little, I might make a play or block somebody's shot or score on them. I'm like, all right, I could play with these guys. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a, a ton of confidence. And I wouldn't have gotten that confidence just playing against three players on my own
0: campus. I need to play against players who could actually play. Mm-hmm. So, how does the journey to playing overseas begin after you finish college? Wow. Another great question. So uh,
1: it's bringing memories. So I graduated from college in 2004, just to give everybody a a frame of reference here. And I wanted to play overseas, but I didn't have, there was no path for me to do it. There was no info. It's not like you could Google it. Google did exist, but it was no information on how to play overseas. There was one website that would list, like, it was like a news site. It would just tell you this team signed this guy, this guy had this many points, but it wasn't the site, like, all right, here's how you do it that did not exist. That only exists now because I created it. And I I say that humbly, but that's the truth. And I wanted to play overseas, but didn't know how to do it. home to Philadelphia and my parents are like, all right, you graduated from college, son, what are you going to do next? I said, I want to play professional basketball. Now they are looking at me like I'm crazy because they saw my, they saw my whole life that I didn't play 14, barely played in high school, didn't even play my last year and a half of college. And it was at a D3. And even though my parents aren't like hardcore basketball junkies, they understand logically that doesn't make sense. D three players do not be. So my mom was like, yo, that she basically told me that was a crazy idea. She was like, "You know, you got a degree, you no, know, get a job, you no, know, get yourself a car, get an apartment. You know, I had braids in my hair. She's like, no, get a haircut. You know, she's <laughs> like, you need to go live like a, uh, an adult, you know, and I'm talking about this pipe dream of being a pro basketball player. So for that first year I had to bite the bullet. I worked a couple of quote unquote regular jobs I became an assistant manager of Foot Locker. That was my first job out of college. Mm-hmm. And I worked at this gym called Bally Total Fitness, selling gym memberships. I did that for my first year. And then that next summer, June of 2005, I had saved up some money because I knew what I do. I need to go to this event called an exposure camp. Mm-hmm. So an exposure camp, for those who don't know, is like a job fair. Everybody knows a job fair, but it's for athletes. But instead of you just talking to people and telling them what you can do, you actually bring your sneakers play basketball. is So it's 200 basketball players. Everybody wants to play pro. And you're all trying to show your stuff so you can get a pro basketball job. Now, the people in the crowd are not just regular fans. These are managers, coaches, and scouts, and owners from pro basketball teams all over the world. They come to watch these players so they can choose the talent that they want. So it's basically like a casting call. You know how they have casting calls and TV shows? It's like that. But it's basketball. And the challenge with this, as opposed to other types of job fairs is that basketball is a team sport so to play basketball this exposure camp they put you on a you no know, eight other guys and you're playing against other teams eight other guys but in all of your course you're supposed to play together because it's a team but everybody on your team is trying to get shown get seen everybody's trying to show out now i don't know if anyone understands people who don't understand basketball you got to understand that if everybody on the team is all trying to impress at the same time, it doesn't work for a team sport. That doesn't work. It ball works the way that it does. Cause LeBron is the guy and everybody else on the team knows that LeBron gets the shots. He gets to score all the points and everybody else is okay with that. But at an exposure camp, everybody's trying to be LeBron at the same time. Yeah. It does not work. So you got to kind of, but if you don't play like that, then nobody will notice you. So it's like, you had to balance, you had to walk this tightrope between being selfish but not looking like you're being selfish. It's a really delicate balance you had to strike at an exposure camp. Luckily, I was able to do that. I had a couple highlight plays there, some dunks and stuff like that that got me noticed, and I played pretty well at that exposure camp. From the camp, they wrote up a scouting report about me, and it was really good. It made me look really good, and it was written by somebody other than me. So it's one thing if I say I'm good; it's another thing somebody else says it. And then I got the footage showing myself playing at this camp, and this is really important footage because. I didn't have any good video from my college experience. And because at college, I was only playing at a D3. And a lot of overseas teams didn't really care about D3 highlights anyway, because who are you playing against? You're playing against a bunch of players who ain't any good anyway. Mm-hmm. So playing against these pros at the exposure camp, this is really important footage. And I didn't get a job from the exposure camp. I went back home to Philadelphia after that camp. It was in Orlando. And that camp cost $250 in cash. That's what I said. I saved up the money. That's what I had to save up. Mm-hmm. Go back home to Philadelphia. Now I started out. Know, here's another time I took initiative. I went on Google and I looked up basketball agents because I knew what I needed. I needed someone who had the connections to the overseas teams who could sell me a player for the team. Because basically, agents are the go-between, just like they are in the literary world or the modeling world or TV world. They are the connection between the teams that have the jobs and the people who want the job. Mm-hmm. So I started reaching out to agents saying, hey, here's him. I had collateral now." that. Here's my scouting report. Here's my game footage. Or I told them I would send them game footage because this is not YouTube. This is before YouTube. Yeah. It's a VHS tape. All right. So, VHS tape. I told any agent who would respond to me, I will mail you a physical copy of my tape. That's how it was back then. So, I reached out to about 60 agents, footage to about 20 of them. One agent was interested in signing me. He signed me, and he's the one who got my career started. He helped me get a job in. Uh, count Lithuania. That's how I started playing basketball overseas.
0: Mm. So was there a big culture shock moving from Pennsylvania to another part of the world in Lithuania? No. So my high school counselor was wrong. So <laughs> I should have went, went to Lipscomb in
1: Tennessee. So uh, a big culture shock for me because I wanted to get out of Philadelphia. I lived there my whole life. I, that's why I wanted to go away to college. And I ended up going away. I mean, the Penn State wasn't that far away, but I wanted to go away the rest of the world because I mean we did have tv back then I saw that there was a lot of stuff going on outside of the environment that I was from I said there's all different kinds of people and all different kinds of places but everybody around me growing up left they never went anywhere so I'm like I want to get out of here and do something else so when I got the chance to go to Lithuania I jumped at it I said yeah I'm going to go as far as possible and just see what's going on and I get to play basketball at the same time no culture shock whatsoever
0: Mm, All right. So after Lithuania, how long were you there? And then did you bounce around between other countries and get to, I guess, sightsee and travel a little bit more of the world? No, did I? That's all (laughs) I did was bounce around. (laughs) Yeah, I bounced around for 10 years. So, man, after Lithuania,
1: I ended up, I was there for a a couple months, came back home to the United States, and then I got a, a job working overnight at a supermarket at this point. That's probably my lowest point in my whole career when I was working overnight at that supermarket, because... It's a lonely job, it's a boring job. All you're doing is stocking the shelves with all the stuff that people bought during the day, you're stocking the shelves. That was a terrible job. Luckily, I only had it for about two weeks because my agent called me, he got me another job playing for this traveling team in the United States. I've been to like every state in America because with this traveling, because we were traveling, we were like North Dakota, Wyoming, Texas, Colorado. We were everywhere in the Western side of America. And I've been to a lot of places on the East side of America. But when I played on that team, there i met a guy on that team that traveling team in the states he was playing in mexico and he actually had like a wife and kids in mexico but he was an american guy but he had moved to mexico he had connections to pro teams and agents down there and he took a liking to me because when even though we were playing it was like a show team it's kind of like the harlem globetrotters but Mm. like a cheaper version of it yeah but we didn't play regular it was like a show. So the other team knew what it was. We would do skits and set up dunks and stuff, but you weren't playing real basketball. Mm-hmm. So on our off days on the traveling team, we would go to a gym and we would just play regular basketball. Mm-hmm. So I remember the first couple of times we did that, this guy, his name was Gerald. When we would play regular basketball, he got a chance to see who could actually play for real. Yeah. And he saw me. and He was like, Oh, Dre, I see you could actually play. He said, yo, I play in Mexico. When I go back down there, I'm going to call you. And I'm going to hook you up with my agent because he saw that I could actually hoop. So he's like, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to hook you up. So that became my next. And these are, again, these just these little threads in my life to help move things along. And he helped me get on in Mexico. So I when I played in Mexico. At this point, we're in 2006, uh, Mexico at the end of the summer, because their leagues, a lot of times their leagues will go the opposite of the United States leagues. So then I came home, got another regular job working at Philadelphia sports clubs was the gym selling memberships all over again. Then I ended up moving to Florida. That was now we're in the 2007. In 2007, I started sending all these emails out. And I wrote about this in one of my books to get myself into overseas ball because I didn't have an agent at this time. The first agent, he left the basketball world. I hadn't played in a year and I didn't have any prospects. So I said, all right, I'm just going to send out emails every day. I send 50 emails a day until I get my next job. And I started doing that. And I got on in Montenegro, and that was a job that I completely brokered that deal 100% myself, negotiated everything. Got on to play in Montenegro, again in 2008, come back home. At this point, I'm moving in, in South Florida, where I am now. Then I went to Germany after that, came back from Germany. And when I came back from Germany in 2009, that's the first time that I said, work on your game on a YouTube video. And that's where that whole brand began. When I first said, work on your game, I already had videos on YouTube, but that's when I first branded myself with that freeze. And from there, uh, after that, man, it was Croatia, uh, the UK, mm. Slovakia, and I think that's it. Okay. I played up until 2015, but at this time, I'm still putting it on YouTube.
0: I started writing books. There's a bunch of other things. I had a parallel career going at mm-hmm. the same time. So as you were starting to put out this YouTube content, did you always know what, like have an idea of what you wanted to be or... You know, kind of how you wanted people to perceive yourself, or was this kind of like grow as you were putting these videos out? No, I just went along. So
1: that VHS tape I told you about from the exposure camp, I went and put on a data CD. I put the data CD onto my computer or into my computer, and that's when I first uploaded the video to YouTube. This is 2005, mm-hmm. so that's where people first saw me on the internet and. The- Is many, many more people know me from the internet than know me from playing overseas. People know that I played overseas, but I mean, whoever watched an overseas basketball game who lives in America, nobody. But who's watched a YouTube video? Everybody. So it's just funny that all the work I was doing was to play overseas, but everybody knows me from YouTube. So it's just funny how that worked out. So probably by around 2008, 2009, around that time, that's when YouTube started the partner program where you can make some ad revenue from publishing video. Mm-hmm. and this, before that there were no ads on the videos people can believe it or not there were no ads on videos before that uh, around 2010 that's when i wrote my first book and then around 2009 that's when i first said work on your game on the video actually i said work on your fucking game is what mm. i said in the video <laughs> and that's when I really picked up on that phrase they, they loved it because it went right along with what i was saying because they saw me making these videos and mind you i'm this dude who nobody knew me it's not like i was on tv playing in the nba they I could play, but they didn't know who I was. They're like, who is Dre Baldwin? Nobody knew who I was, but I'm on these videos all the time working out. So then when I said work on your fucking game in the video, people were like, it connected because, yo, this dude is always working on his game. He's always in the gym. So when he says it, I had the right to say that. I had earned my right to make that statement. So people really bought into that and people started repeating it back to me. Work on your game. Even to this day walking around in my neighborhood and somebody will see me like Jerry work on your game all the time (laughs) because everybody connects with that phrase you know so that's how people really started to know me and that was around that time probably about 11 years ago Noah that's when I started saying to myself you know what I can make a whole business out of this and the good thing about the phrase is that it's not necessarily married to basketball work on your game can be for anybody right so I started writing books and then people started asking me about the mental game approach, people start asking me, you know, why do you come to the gym every day to work out? You know, how do you have confidence to perform? Mm-hmm. You know, you got cut from your high school team, three pro. You barely played in college. Well, at least at the end of college, you walked on that at d D three. Now, how'd you have the idea to try to play pro with that? Like that's a crazy idea to even think you could play pro off that kind of background. Mm-hmm. Or how'd you get started? You know, how begin doing these things? And even from the little bit of story I've told you here today. How many times did I just do stuff? It's right. not like somebody told me it was going to happen. I just did stuff and stuff worked out. So mm-hmm. those principles, when confidence, mental toughness, personal initiative, I just started talking about them. I didn't even know I was making a brand out of it. I just was talking about it because that's how I thought. And that's when I said to myself and people said to me, like, yo, I don't even, But I listen to you when you talk about that mindset, because that applies to anybody. So right. that's when I started, that was probably around to answer your question, maybe around 2011. That's when people who weren't after started really
0: telling me that they were connecting with my message. So that's when I started to know. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the takeaways I get from that story is listening to one of your podcasts, you said something about letting your inner voice breathe, right? And like you said, Mm -hmm. no one told you to go do these things, even going back to college or even after high school, right? No one said like, go do this, go do that. But you wanted to do it because there was some sort of passion and desire for you. And sure, you weren't going to make a lot of money right then and there. And I feel like especially with social media or just other outside pressures in society, a lot of times people now do things for money or in hopes that we're going to get either compensated, rewarded, you know, with praise, right. or we're going to get some sort of like shower and better treatment because we do something. Uh, but, right. you know, it's very rare now that people do like, you know, the work behind the scenes without posting something about it or without you know trying to garner some right. attention from it. <laughs> no matter what it is the whole game yeah and i but i think that's cool and then especially too you know you came up right before like youtube kind of popped off and and i think the coolest Mm. thing about like a story like yours you know if this was 60 years ago like we would have never heard about someone like you or it would have you know, you know you'd have to be on channel seven or whatever the you know main channels are in that area or on a radio station now everyone can kind of have their own little platform and pass on this message And, and a story as inspiring as yours you know i think that's like extremely powerful because there's you know a lot of people especially like you said growing up an inner city type area there's a lot of people mm-hmm. who have you know whether it's hoop dreams or just athletic dreams in general but they don't know how to necessarily translate it into you know business world or you know do something beyond the sports in their high school or college but you know right. you're right there is like i feel like is a, a good example for people to learn from especially you know kids and in, in lower or poor communities you know Absolutely. And the good thing these days is that we have people like yourself
1: who are translating that for people so people can understand, hey, here's how I can take my circumstance and get into something. Whereas my generation, we were first kind of trying to figure it out. I mean, people in my generation, not like we're you know, middle age, but we had to kind of figure it out. Whereas now the generation of now, somebody's in their 20s or in your teens right now. You got so many people who are telling you, they're giving you the whole game. So all you had to do was follow it. Whereas the generation before mine, people who are, let's say, you know, in their late forties and fifties now, you had to either go through a gatekeeper or you couldn't get on. (laughs) It was gatekeeper or nothing. Whereas our generation was the first one that we could start doing stuff, gatekeeper, but we had to figure out the path. Nowadays,
0: the whole blueprint is laid out for you. Mm -hmm. So do you still, do you miss playing overseas basketball or professional at all or? Was the decision no, to hang? Was the decision <laughs> to hang him up? You know, uh, fine as is. Yeah, it was my decision, 100, to stop playing. I stopped playing when I was
1: 33. So I'm, I just turned 39 a couple of days ago. So my it was my decision to stop playing because I just saw other opportunities for myself in the the business realm of things, and I saw more ways that as far as what I could do business wise, as far as the work on your game message, and some opportunities that I saw for myself outside of playing sports they were sitting there at that moment. And I'm like, man, I got to take these opportunities. I can't say, all right, y'all wait for another year and then I'll start doing stuff. And, you know, sometimes even then I would would do online dating in a relationship. Now I would do online dating. And here's a funny thing that a lot of people don't think about when you're talking to athletes, especially when you play overseas, is that every time I met a female and they would read my little profile and I say, you know, I this and I play overseas, they would say, all right, well, are you going overseas again? because i might if i'm going overseas they're like well i can't commit to this dude or really get serious with him because he's about to go to europe or do something like that it was more than one time that i was with a chick and i was about to go overseas and she's like well yo i gotta go no i gotta do what i gotta do you gotta do what you gotta do i gotta do what i gotta do and those relationships got lost you know so that was another thing that is an underrated aspect of playing overseas, a lot of people don't talk about and you know, especially when you're single of course so that it was just an opportunity for me to move on. As far as not playing, also physically, at some point, you know, you just don't want to do the work anymore. You know, and Kobe Bryant, you know, when he put when he retired his last season, before the season, he put out that letter, dear basketball, mm-hmm. and they made it into a movie. But when he put out the letter, it said in there, look, mentally, I can you know just keep playing forever, but I can't keep putting my body through this. Mm-hmm. At some point, you just don't. Do the work. The thing about being a professional athlete is the games are the easy part. So when you watch, uh, I don't know when we're going to put this out. So I won't say the event is coming out. So I don't want to date your show. But let's say you watch a football or NBA games, the games are the fun. All right. That's the fun part of being a pro athlete is everything else that makes an athlete retire. No athlete retires until they get tired of playing in the games. They get tired of the training, the ice tubs, the foam roll. The sports massages, the injuries, the recoveries, the their trainer making them do stuff. Like, they get tired of that stuff. That's the stuff that makes you stop playing sports. It is the games. If all was the games, we wouldn't be talking right now because I'll be playing
0: at this exact moment. <laughs> okay, right on. <laughs> yeah. So after you re- retire in 2015, you already said that you had a book out. You already said that you were doing stuff on YouTube. But when did you know the right. work on your game? Did that, I guess, kind of say, kick in, in a, into a higher gear as soon as you retire or did you take some time off or what was your plan after that? No, I didn't take
1: any time off, I <laughs> went straight into it. So I wrote my first book in 2010. Mm-hmm. So 2015, I probably had, I think I maybe had four or five books-ish around that time. Then that, into that next year or two, between 2015 and 2017, I probably wrote another like 10 because I had a lot of ideas for what I wanted to do, but now I had the space and I had the time to write about it. And I had this audience. I had an audience of people who had already bought into me and I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I definitely didn't know business structure or any of that stuff. I was really just good at creating products and selling them directly. That's what I was good at. And now over the years, I've learned more stuff about how to actually structure business. So for me, when I stopped playing, it was full speed ahead. Now I'm a full-time entrepreneur. I just went straight into that and I knew it was a lot that I needed to learn because I was at that point, 33 years old. So in the world, and I tell this to athletes all the time, especially those who are pros and they're trying to get into business, y'all have to understand that if you're 35 and you just stopped playing and now you want to be an entrepreneur, you're competing people who they've been entrepreneurs since they got out of college. So the whole time you've been playing football or baseball, they've been learning business and you weren't doing any of that. So you're 10 years behind them, even though you're the same age, 10 years ahead of you. And I had to humble myself and look at myself the exact same way. So I still consider myself relatively new in the business world because I was playing sports. I was putting out products and videos and stuff, but I'm a full-time business person. Whereas these people have been in business since they were you know, 19, mm-hmm. 22.
0: I just got into business. So I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. Right on. Okay. So you said that you had a lot of ideas. You wrote a lot of books. Did it ever yeah. become like overwhelming or how did you, I guess, space out your work so that you didn't have overlapping ideas and, and get, you know, overwhelmed with certain things. I always have overlapping ideas,
1: <laughs> even to this day. I got a lot of overlapping ideas. But the, the key thing to know is just prioritizing, just deciding what's the most important thing we're going to do now, then what's the most important thing we're going to do next. A hundred ideas that if I could clone myself 99 times, we'd work on all of them at the same time. But for now, we just have to decide what is the most important thing we can do right now in terms of you know, our business then we work on that. As soon
0: as that's done, then we work on the next thing, then the next thing and the next thing. So that's just a discipline. Okay, awesome. And then recently, yeah. I've been, you know, watching a lot of TikToks, I feel like the past two, three years, and I happen to come across the ones that you've done are not TikToks, TED Talks, my bad. And uh, i was about to say, I'm not, I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, TED Talk, excuse me. <laughs> okay. They sound Same very thing, similar. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but how did the opportunity for you come about for you to speak at those TED Talks? Uh, here's another one. So I remember I was listening to Tim Ferriss
1: podcast mm-hmm. and he had this guy on there named and Derek Sivers is the author himself. He created this company called CD baby. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but mm-hmm. I think they sold years ago. They used to sell packages and sell CDs for independent musicians back in the early days before we had streaming and all of that. And he sold the company for you know several million dollars. I think tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions. I don't remember the number. But anyway, Derek was on the show with Tim Ferriss. This is around 2014. So at this point, I'm already thinking about getting out of basketball. I know that I'm soon to be out of the game. And one of the things Derek said on the show was, look, anybody who wants to reach out to me, and Tim Ferriss only has people on that show who are very well known, big audiences. And Derek says, anybody who wants to reach out to me, ask me any questions about how I did what I did or questions about business, I'm open to answering those questions. And the reason why he was open is because Derek, when he his company and he made all that money, he basically... I don't know, you would call him retired, but he doesn't do something specifically business wise these days. He took his money and said, I want to travel the world with my, you know, my family and whatever, and just enjoy life. Like he's not one of these type A CEOs who's always doing something new and trying to make more and more money. He said, I got the money now. I just want to live life. So what he does is still talks about this to this day. He responds to every email. If you email him, he will write you back. And mind you, this is a well-known dude. I'm, I'm sure this dude gets 100 emails a day, but he responds. Mm-hmm. So he said, "Email me." So I email, and I know I know how to talk to people. So I you know, sold myself. I told him that I was a fan of his work, which I was. I wasn't lying. That I had read his stuff. I heard him on Tim Ferriss, and I told him why I was reaching out. I said, "Listen, the sports," and I you know, let him know I've already done some things. I got all these videos on YouTube. I've written these books. But I want to learn how I can get into like that thought leadership space where I'm like known as a person who's an expert on, you know some type of intellectual property. I'm known in basketball, but I knew I didn't want to just stay in basketball. Mm-hmm. How can I get known and be you know do speaking gigs and stuff like that? He wrote me back like the next day, maybe the same day. He said to me, "Look, you probably want to start maybe try to do a TED talk." And he said, "You know TEDx, which is like the local organized TED events. So there's probably TED events where you live. There's TED events where I live, and." independently organized but they all follow the same format mm-hmm. so he told me to go find a local ted talk where i live and i just followed his advice i did what he told me to do another thing that people a lot of people don't do yeah where <laughs> advice you give it to them then they don't do it so anyway i did what he told me to do and i went and looked up some ted x events in my local area my first one was in broward county which is like fort lauderdale which is right north of me so it's about 45 minutes from me that's where i did my first one I did another one in South Florida, then I did one in Vegas, and I did one in uh, North Dakota, believe it or not. Because I just you no know, took initiative. I took initiative, came up with my idea. What am I gonna talk about? I sold myself in order to get chosen and I went and gave those talks. And nowadays people know me for giving those talks. And then when I if I mention it, that's the credibility piece. You know, giving a TED talk is like a credibility piece. So it has helped my brand a lot
0: just the fact that I did those talks. Mm-hmm. So that's how I did it. Mm-hmm. So I got to ask, after accomplishing so much between your books, playing overseas, your YouTube channel, TED Talks, everything, what keeps you motivated to just keep pushing out more content and just to keep pushing out your message?
1: Man, what keeps me going is not, most of the world doesn't know about my message. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest things. Um, you probably, I don't know, but I don't think you heard of me before. you, know, I don't think a lot of your audience knew who I was, you know, before I initially reached out to you, which means that this message still has not, you know, spread the way that it needs to spread. I feel like there should be many, many more people should know about this message. And I see work on your game. I think work on your game can become, you know, how Nike has just do it for athletes. I think work on your game can be like, the just do it when it comes to personal development. So, and it's far, far from being that right now. So it's my job. Since that's my message, I created, I branded it, I own it. It's my job to get it out to more people. And that means, you know, finding it like yourself and anywhere where I can get my message out to people who are open to it and want to hear it, benefit from it, I get that message out. So that means more, it means an interview, that means a podcast episode of my own. It means whatever I got to do, it's my job to get it out. To. Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the bigger challenges that you have faced in, you know, trying to put your message out there, being an entrepreneur and having all these different outlets and lanes?
1: question one more
0: time yeah no it's all good I was gonna I just said uh what were some of the bigger obstacles that you may have faced as far as you know pursuing this lane and the many different lanes that you have and being an entrepreneur and getting your message out there Hmm. well one of the biggest obstacles is honestly nowadays with so
1: many people having everybody has a platform and you want and you can have one person have 10 platforms is now you have to kind of cut through you have to cut through all the people who are sharing their message and really get people's attention. So one of the important things with that is really just figuring out exactly who you want to reach, how you want to reach them and what you want to get to them. Because when I pick up my, I remember just this morning, I was uh, about to shave and I'm looking at my phone. I'm like, damn, what do I want to listen to? Do I want to watch one of these, listen to one of YouTube videos that I got saved? Do I want to listen to one of these podcast episodes? Do I want to finish this audio book? I got all these different options and every day there's a thousand new books coming out, a hundred thousand podcast episodes, 200,000 YouTube videos. How do you get a person to give you their attention with all of these options that we have? So I think that's one of the biggest challenges these days. And then on top of that is really just nailing down your messaging. What exactly do you want people to take away from the, what you're giving them? Because when someone gives you their attention, it doesn't mean you're going to keep it. That they give you their attention for a little bit but if you don't do something to hook them in and keep them listening you might lose that person just as quickly as you gain them so you got to really nail down what that message is and what you want people to get mm-hmm.
0: and you hit the nail on the head too it can be sometimes overwhelming to have all the different outlets and all the all the different things that we can listen to all the different things that you could read because i remember when i was in college too a professor brought it up you know just in the i believe this was 2016 she was bringing it up but like out of all the books that came out just in 2016 alone, it would have taken over 300 plus years to read them all. And it's like, that's just one year. You know, there's books from every other year. So it it can kind of get overwhelming. But I think what you're going back to what you were saying earlier is prioritizing, right? Because you had the different ideas for books. You were playing overseas. You had your YouTube content, TED Talks. But it's just about prioritizing you know, what message you want to get across. And I think a a biggest thing too, especially if you want to create change in your life you have to do you know prioritize things that are a little bit outside your comfort zone right because if you prioritize the stuff that you're comfortable with and the stuff that you know you might you know it might make you feel better and and there's times for that as well too but if you want to see some change it's good to like venture outside of your comfort zone as well yeah it's a requirement because only
1: if you do things that you are with, then nothing's going to change. And maybe that's okay. I mean, if you're doing things that are working and you're comfortable with them, then you could do more of the same. But if you want anything to change, then you have to step outside of what is a uh, cool and convenient for you and do something different. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be something that's you know, so necessarily hard or bad, but you do have to try something different. So mm-hmm. Having an open mind, I think that's a common trait you find in entrepreneurs
0: now speaking of something different obviously the world was a lot different after the pandemic hit the united states in march how did that if at all affect your business model and and some of the things that you went about in your normal everyday life well i do a lot of uh, professional speaking so
1: with the pandemic there was no speaking like all 2020 there were no professional speaking gigs i mean there are some through zoom but i'm not really i don't i couldn't get excited about doing the zoom speaking gig (laughs) so really what i got to do is really focus a lot on my my internal stuff, like my list building, making sure my funnels are in place, putting products in certain areas, interviewing my audience, finding out exactly who I am serving and what exactly they want from me, which may not necessarily be the same thing as I think I'm giving to them. Really finding that out and really just asking myself, where where exactly do I see my business ideally? What do I ideally want to do? Because there are things that I can do and maybe they work, but what do I really want to do? What's my business look like? And really getting a chance to focus on that since there wasn't really much business traveling we could do last year. So I think this year, or at least going into later this year, I think that stuff will start to, and any entrepreneur who looked at things the way that I looked at it, I think will be in a better space when things do
0: come back because they'll have more structure and a better rhyme and reason to what they're doing Mm -hmm. in business. Okay. 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 So what are some goals that you have for this? You already mentioned later this year, but what are some other goals that you have in 2021, whether it be personal or with your business? Man, well, in business, we got at least two books coming out this year. One of them is already, we're just working on the, like the in
1: matter, getting the covers designed and stuff like that. But the book is done, the audio book is done. We just didn't, we're going to put them out as a package deal. Then the other book, the second one, I had to finish just putting all this together. I've already done most of the writing, but just putting everything together and structuring it and all that that's going to be the one we're going to put together a full launch and all of that for that book. That'll probably be, we're in you know, early in the year now, so I'm thinking maybe summertime, but it's too early to tell. That's one thing I'll be doing. Then just looking at seeing where the, the professional speaking slash events business is, because I do great to speak to a live audience, and I much to do it in person and do it, on video, so seeing where the opportunities will be for me to speak to live audiences, I love doing that, so hopefully we can get to that by the summer, but we'll see. I mean, we don't know, like you said, with the pandemic.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything's very unpredictable, but I mean, it's uh, an adapt and conquer world that we're living in. You You gotta continue to be on your toes, and I think it's very representative of sports, right? In sports, you can rehearse a game as much as you want to, but as soon as things go wrong, you have to be able to adjust on your feet in a game, or in practice and i think it's the same thing right now during this time yeah you're absolutely right i think
1: in the last over the last 12 months that's exactly what we've all had to do even if you weren't ready for it you had you ain't a choice
0: mm-hmm. now with the now with the books do you have any title or do you have the titles in line already for those two books coming out this year that way the audience can kind of maybe check those out uh, i do but i can't tell you <laughs> okay all right no worries <laughs> can't tell you yet but if anybody wants to get one of my books i do have a people can get. and If you are all right, well, I can share with that later or now, whatever. Yeah, go ahead now and share with some of the book titles that you have out. Okay. Are we on video? Yes, we're on we? video. Okay. So this right here is called The Mirror of Motivation.
1: I keep it on my desk because I'm always talking about this book. So this is, the subtitle is The Self-Guide to Self-Discipline. This is the first book of mine that anyone should read. If you've never heard of me before, you should start with this. Even if you're an athlete, start with the reason why you start with this one, because our philosophy is four principles, discipline, confidence, mental toughness, personal initiative, This the self-guide, the discipline. And the reason why you want this book, because you know, it's really hard to kind of sell a book tell people this discipline. The only people who are looking for a book on discipline are usually people who already have it. So why would you want this book otherwise? Is because everyone who's listening, if you've been sitting here listening to this conversation for us, you probably have goals. You have things you want to achieve in life. And- most people understand that you can't get something for nothing, right? You know, you have to do some work to achieve a goal. But the question many people never ask themselves is, who do I need to be? What type of person do I need to be in life so I can do what I need to do, so I can get the results that I want? What kind of posture do I need to have? What kind of energy do I need to approach life with? And the reason why it matters so much is because a lot of people spend their whole lives doing a whole lot of work. Mm-hmm. They work hard every day, no hustling, team, no sleep, grinding, all of that stuff, but They're still not getting the results that they, even though they're doing all the work and they may have a great strategy. The reason why it doesn't work is because they never ask themselves who they need to be. When you change who you are being as a person, the actions automatically come with it. Just like I said, I'm a person who's in great shape. Well, what is a person who's in great shape? What do they do? They Usually they drink a good amount of water. They don't eat that extra slice of cake. They go to the gym three to five times a week, do certain things. The being dictates the doing. But if you never ask yourself, who am I being? It doesn't matter what you do. You're not going to get the results. So this book is not me telling you what to do. That doesn't make sense. It's not me telling you who to be. That also doesn't make sense. This is me giving you the frameworks for you to answer the question, who you need to be. That's why it's called the mirror of motivation. So you look in the mirror. It's not looking out the window, the mirror. So you do what you need to do. i will give you the book for free. Yes, the physical book. All you do is cover the shipping. I will ship it to you wherever you're at. You just go to mirrorofmotivation.com. That's the title of the book, without the word "mirrorofmotivation.com."
0: That's where you get this book free. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, any other books in the past that you think? Because you said that would be should be the first book that we read. Any other yeah. books that you'd like to recommend off the top of your head? Well, I found if I give people more than one, they forget all
1: of them. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick with that one. But here's the thing: we got this. We got the whole thing processed out. We got a whole sales so when you go get this book trust me you'll find out about the other ones because we're going to offer them all to you so you'll know about the other ones start with this one though and then we'll take you to the next one
0: we will walk you through it so you don't have to remember all right sounds good so as we wrap things up towards the end of the uh, interview i like to ask these introspective questions to kind of help the audience to get to know you a little bit better so the first one i'm going to ask is if you can talk to any person or multiple people dead or alive who would you want to talk to the most
1: I would talk to some of my virtual mentors my virtual mentors all come to, from the entertainment industry. So they'd be uh, Sean Combs, Sean Carter, and Curtis Jackson. So people know them by their state, uh, Puff Daddy, Jay-Z 50 Cent. Okay. And I mentioned those guys as my virtual mentors, even though I don't do music and it's because they had to build a business. You know, as an athlete, you really have to build a business. These days, uh, every athlete talks about that, how they're a CEO and you know, more than an athlete and all that But as an athlete, all the structure is made for you. You know, LeBron James doesn't have to market the Lakers. He doesn't sell any tickets. He doesn't have to organize the events. He doesn't have to secure the venue. He doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is show up and play. And there's all this infrastructure that sets all that up for him. Mm -hmm. In the entertainment industry, you have all the business up on your own. You had to do the marketing, the promotion. You had to find the talent. You had to sell the tickets. You had to create the product. You had to... Make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. You got to make sure everyone's in the space they're supposed to be in. Literally the CEO. And those three guys, you know, again, I'm from a, a little bit older generation. So any of y'all who was Noah's age, are like, those guys is old. Why are you talking about this <laughs> Well, I'm older than y'all. So that's why those are that when I was growing up in the 90s, these were the guys. And they built businesses to the point that none of them really makes music anymore. But they're all still relevant to this day right. because of what they've done as business people. So I've always the business side of what they did not necessarily their talent because again I'm not trying to rap or make a video but the business side of it I definitely respect and you know from our from our culture of color those have been they have become the the prominent people that we see who have created success not just off of their talent but they had to have a business mind in order to do it mm-hmm. whereas in the sports world athletes get mad at me when I say this but I'm an athlete so I can say it uh, we hit the genetic lottery you know, I'm mm-hmm. 6'4". I got all this fast twitch muscle fiber. I have 39-inch vertical. Uh, you can't work for that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Work for that. I didn't, you know, train for it. I just had it. Had I been 5'7". How tall were you, Noah? I'm 5'10". So. Right, there you go. <laughs> so had I been Noah's height, I wouldn't have been a basketball player. Probably not. And because I hit that, I was able to make it in sports. And in our culture, a lot of, you know, people come up thinking that being an athlete is the only way to go. But if you don't hit that genetics, you ain't making it. Mm-hmm. So, but in the music world, entertainment world, you can and how tall you are if you have the business mind. So that's why those guys.
0: Yeah, and those guys. It was cool to see the growth of them real quick too. Just to add on to that, like Fifty Cent, I was a big fan. I was still in elementary, middle school age, but I remember you know buying G Unit shoes and then the <laughs> right. Rocawear with Jay Z. Obviously, exactly. you know, you know, all, all those guys were so influential. Even to our generation, we were just a little younger. But yeah, those right. are definitely three people I don't they want to had, talk They to had about the whole attention no matter what age you were Mm -hmm. exactly exactly right so next question if you could have any toppings on a pizza what would they be oh on a pizza that's a good question i might get a pizza today as a matter of fact (laughs) so
1: i'm gonna go with and even though i'm vegan i'm vegan with an asterisk on the weekend i'm not vegan so (laughs) i'm gonna go with uh, pepperoni sausage i like sauces the only thing is when you get pepperoni and sauces is so much grease sometimes yeah. it gets too greasy it depends on who makes it you know they yeah. got to make it right but you i know what
0: they said. you got to pat it down with a paper towel or something before you eat yeah, it. yeah <laughs> exactly i hate that i don't
1: like when there's all that on the pizza
0: yeah okay yeah. now if you were stranded on an island but food and water were provided what are three things you'd like to bring to pass the time how long am i there uh let's just say you know uh, let's say uh, two years <laughs> all right i'm stuck there for two years uh uh-huh. damn um a laptop there's
1: wi-fi connected okay <laughs> right, if i got that then i'll be able to connect with the world and i could just
0: I can live stream and stuff every day so i'm gonna be am i by myself it's just me you can bring people too. some people have, you know, brought people in the past. You can also package things. So if you wanted to being like a, a basketball and a basketball hoop, that could be one thing instead of, you know, two different ones. Mm-hmm. No, I ain't playing no basketball, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll
1: probably
0: take a walk every day. It'll be my exercise. But I need a laptop that's
1: Wi-Fi connected. Mm-hmm. That'll be one thing. Uh, if I'm definitely stranded for two years for sure, and then I'll be gone, then I, I would say boat equipment. But since I'm going to be there for two years, no matter what, then I won't bring a boat um damn i could do damn to everything from that lap food and water is provided i don't know i would have to think about what else damn a laptop would pretty much do everything that i need i would have to think i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to uh, take a take a rain check on the other two answers i don't know
0: okay all right sounds good we'll let you think about that one i guess we'll say a phone okay it's pretty much the same thing <laughs> all right all right i'll well, bring a person
1: actually i'll bring a person yeah i'll okay. bring my i'll bring my girlfriend with me she'll keep me company well really get to know each other
0: yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a lot of one-on-one time exactly all right so two more questions if you could be reincarnated to any animal what would you want to be reincarnated as i would be an eagle i like mm. birds so
1: okay. it can i can fly i can you know see the the bird's eye view literally of the whole world and i like watching i see the little Instagram when the birds fly down into the water and they just grab a fish they just pluck the fish right out of the water from all the way up in the sky I'm like how do they have that kind of timing so yeah I would be an eagle I want to be a I think an eagle is at the top of thing right eagles don't have prejudice so i have be yeah, one of those birds yeah. that nobody
0: nobody nobody uh preys on them so mm-hmm. yeah eagle There you go. Yeah. And like you said, just like watching some of those animal planet videos of like the birds scooping up the fish, man, it's, they're pretty majestic. It's, it's kind of cool to watch that. Like, especially like late at night.
1: Yeah. And I watch enough of them that now when I go to my explore tab on Instagram, that's all I see is animal videos. Oh, nice. (laughs) They used to to show me girls with no clothes on, but now it's just (laughs) animals.
0: Hey, you gotta, you gotta fix up your algorithm. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You watch two of them, then that's all they show you. Right, right. Yeah. So. (laughs) So the last question, if you could give any advice to your younger self, what would it be? Uh, Invest in personal development
1: as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. That's something that my parents didn't really, I don't think they really into personal development like that. I didn't know what it was called, but I was always drawn as a kid. You know, back before Amazon took over, we used to go to, I mean, they still have bookstores, but not as much as they used to. I used to actually go in bookstores and that's uh, books before they were digital. And I would always be attracted to two sections: the sports section and the like, the human psychology. That's what they used to call it, human psychology. Then it morphed into they start calling it self-help, and nowadays they call it personal development, professional development. But it's the same thing. It's just about the mindset of people, how we think, how we can alter our thinking, and how thinking leads to actions. So I'd always been into that. It wasn't until I was maybe 21, I heard someone use that phrase, personal development, and then when I understood what it was, oh, this is I, I could read these books or go to these events or listen to this person. And that person will help me think different and make me a more valuable person. All I gotta do is just read it or listen to it. I said, I'll do this forever. So, and now this is what I do for a living, personal development. So I wish I had known about it when I was first started reading, when I was seven, eight years old,
0: but I I was maybe 21, but we'll make up for lost time. All right, well said, this, yeah. is, this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate you again, for taking the time out of your day to record this. Before you go, go ahead and plug your website, your book, or anything else that you'd like to promote.
1: Sure. Well, I'm on all the social media platforms. So anyone who's listening, whatever platform you prefer, just look my name up. I'm on there. My homepage, my personal webpage is allday.com. You won't forget that. Just look it up. And I'll give you one more thing. Again, no, I found when I give people too many things, they forget them. Mirrorofmotivation.com. You can just start here. If you just go here, claim your free book. Everything else that I'm doing, you'll know about because then we'll have you, I have you on my email list. You'll get my emails, you'll get my new articles. I'll tell you about my podcast, everything else that I'm doing, my whole ecosystem, you will find out about. This is your gateway drug
0: of motivation.com. Just go there and get this book. Awesome. Well, thank you again and hope, you know, best of luck with everything this year. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It It's a fun conversation. Boom, that's going to wrap it up for another episode of the My Mike and I podcast, episode 143. And hey, if you enjoyed that most recent episode, this conversation with Dre Baldwin, be sure to leave a rating or review. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it'd be greatly appreciated. And if you're listening on any other platform, be sure to subscribe, follow, like the podcast homepage, and share it with a friend. Did want to thank again Dre Baldwin for being a guest on this week's show. Did want to let you guys know again, to echo what he was saying at the end, The Mirror of Motivation. It's a book that you can cop for free on his book, on his, not on his book, on his website, mirrorofmotivation.com. If you're interested in checking out more of his other books, as well as his podcast, or just more information about Drake Baldwin and some of the things that he's you know done in his career, just check out workonyourgame.com. That's workonyourgame.com. And check out the book Mirror of Motivation at motivation.com I'll leave both those links in the bio for you guys to check it out. Man, a lot of good stuff coming in 2021. It's been a rough week. Like I said in the beginning though, it's Valentine's Day. Don't forget to love yourself. Self-love is the best type of love. Continue to chase your dreams, not checks. Never stop seeking knowledge. And I hope you guys continue to battle whatever obstacle you may be facing at this point of your life. And with that being said, did want to thank, again, Generic Sports for producing the instrumental playing out in the background. Be sure to check out more of his work on all the social medias, as well as Bandcamp and SoundCloud. Just search up Generic Sports. Shout out to Vince Correa, designing the Mike and I logo. And shout out to you the listening for tuning in to another episode of the My Mike and I podcast. I am the host, Noah Alvarez, signing off. Till next time.